this is the commercial property show Australia show number 49 Are there any certain brands of service stations you like more than others, like Ampol, Caltex, Shell? Like, what do you like? I personally like the one who make more money, and it's mainly <laughs> regardless of brands. And I tell you why. Hey, commercial property community, we are back for season three, 2022 with some big announcements. Welcome to the show. My name is Andrew Bean. I'm your host today. And our first big announcement is that the Commercial Property Show is going to start producing network shows as well on top of the original show. So what that means for you is that we're going to have more awesome content coming your way more frequently. Now, the second big announcement is that our first network show is going to be called the Revolve Commercial Podcast featuring Mish Daniel and Revolve Commercial. And we're super excited to have them on board as our first network show. That will be coming to you in February, so watch out for that. Now, in today's show, have you ever thought about buying a service station? They seem to be extremely recession-proof. But what about electric cars and how do you add value to them? My guest today, Hamad Tagvoy, explains all and shares his full experience in investing in service station businesses and purchasing service stations as a freehold going concern. But first, if you're struggling to figure out if that industrial investment that you're looking at is being sold at a fair cap rate or the rate per square meter is to market or how many new leases have actually been written in the last month and you just want to understand the supply and demand of a market, then check out CP Data. That's commercialpropertydata.com.au. The only platform that breaks down commercial property data sector by sector for you, the investor, to make informed decisions that are backed with solid data. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. Check out our free membership today. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching commercial property community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is serial entrepreneur Hamad Tagvoy. How are you mate? Very well thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic buddy. Thanks for being on the show. 
Excellent. It's my pleasure to be in your show and hopefully we can have some awesome output for our audience. That's it, mate. That's it, mate. So can you just give us a brief description of your investment background, what you really do? My initial investment in particular in services station, getting back to over 10 years ago, where I start buying a services station business in Sydney, North Shore. Not to mention before then, I had no idea about the services station businesses and so on. But then after a while, I get interested that how this business and industry works and how secure is to get into the business and property investment in this area. So after that, I keep buying both businesses and residential and commercial property and creating my portfolio in the industry. After a while, considering my main background is in IT, that there is a massive gap in the knowledge of this whole community, mainly for the operator of the services station. And I understand that I could use my knowledge and experience and IT background in order to build a system, which we'll explain a bit later, to help the industry to first of all, be aligned with all this compliance and regulatory requirement, and also in order to boost and improve the safety and environmental compliance in this area. I love it. I love it. So I've asked you here today to talk about that exact thing. So investing in service stations and then also investing in service station businesses. So Hamid, why did you choose service stations? Like, what was it about the service station business that really, like, drew you to it? Well, for myself, being in an IT business and having a full-time job on that time, I was looking for a business. I tried a lot of business, I should say, to not really involving myself and my time in a full-time basis. So let me have some free times. And in the same time I'm running and doing my full-time job, I could have some businesses. And in the same time, I was looking for some sort of what we call as a crisis-proof business with the minimum involvement and with the high return. So I've tried a lot of different businesses and it ended up by finding that service station could be one of them. And I'm glad that I choose that business. The reason is because process around this service station is, is quite simple comparing a lot of other retail businesses. And that gave me a chance to utilize my time in other locations and in a better way. In terms of property investment, I understand that most of these tenants in this industry having a really long-term lease and also have a very good and a stable, I would say, by minimum 3% increase in annual rent. Beside that, very you know, consistent in performance and services stations are located in a really prime location. So it gives me a very bright uh, future development potential. And all of these are love cash flow. So service station is one of those property which give me very good and high yield. One of the other aspects which really excite me about the service station is unlike a lot of other retail businesses, I could add a lot of value and utilize the space in a many different way, which we can discuss and talk about that later on. So when I put all this aspect together, then I choose to choose one of my major investment in this industry. I definitely got the right guy for this interview. We all love cash flow on the commercial property show. And I've never actually heard anyone describe their investment as a crisis proof business. Like usually it's like recession proof, but a crisis proof. I really, really like that. So mate, 
In terms of lease, you just touched on it there a little bit. What would the average lease be for a service station business, like on top of the real estate? Similar to any other property, there are different factors which can define the lease. And it's important that who you lease this service station from. Sometimes you're directly dealing with the landlord, but in service station is quite often that you deal with a middleman or which in most cases are fuel company. So they have a very long head lease and then you sublease it from them. So then it's very different game. If you are dealing with the landlord, which I would suggest is always you find the landlord and dealing with the landlord directly, you normally have a better chance to go with the average market, obviously based on the locations, how big is the land and so on, right? But when you're dealing with this fuel company and you might get like a sublease from them because they know how much money you make and how much fuel you sell and basically what is your profit, they normally adjust as your income, right? And it's often now that in some company charging your rent as per how much you're selling. I had a client just yesterday who sent me a service station to evaluate. And this this is one of the things which we do for our clients. And the rental was, I think, 10% of the shop sale, right? So there's no defined rate. But these guys renting this business from one of these fuel suppliers. But if you're dealing with the landlord or traditional landlords, then you have a chance to basically negotiate and have a very long lease and so on. So that's really interesting. I mean, so I never really thought about it. So I guess real estate agents don't manage these tenancies. You would usually deal with a landlord that's self-managing. Is that right? In very, very most cases, yes. Real estate agent normally just involving on selling and buying the property. But after that, since you are dealing with a very long-term tenant, you're normally dealing with the landlord. To give you an example, I remember, I think last year, one of the major brands sold, I think, six or seven uh, services station, which comes with the 60 years lease, 10 option of six years. So, mate, when you're dealing with just the actual fuel company, they're very sneaky in that way that they're giving you a percentage that you have to pay. I guess that would be really, really good to avoid that. So, mate, what kind of price would you usually be buying a service station business for? And then how much would the real estate cost as well as the business? Okay. In terms of business, it's quite different and it depends on the different business model which you get, regardless of the brand in most cases. To explain what I said is that every brand has its own business models, right? Yep. Some of them just following one way, but most of them having a different one. For example, retailer buying fuel from a fuel company and based on the local market competition, they define the price. They might change it once or a few times a day, right? The fuel company has no control over the price. The other common way is what we call as a commission agent, which means, and as you highlighted, that the retailer does not own a fuel, fuel owned by fuel company, the big major companies, and they define the price. The retailer only get a percentage of, or what you say percentage, but what we call as a cent per liter or CPL, which means like a fixed rate of, let's say, five cent per liter or two cent per liter, or in some cases, 1.5 cent per liter. And in these cases, as I said, the, the major player is the fuel company. In terms of the criteria, what criteria do you use to pick a location? Like what goes into that to actually find a place that's actually good for a service station business? I guess 
the competition is one of the major factors which can define a good business. You might be in a rural area, right? So this is yeah. not applicable for a lot of businesses, but in service station as an essential service, which everyone needs fuel to for their cars or equipment, it doesn't really matter that if you are in the middle of city or in a rural area, as long as you have a good number of customers. Give you an example. If you are in a, let's say, a regional area with only 10,000 population and you are the only service station or one out of two, in most cases, you have a much better chance to make money than you are in a very busy city while there are like 10 service stations across the road, right? The reason is because on that less competition area, you are the one who define the price and you obviously can sell it much more than the market average. But when you are in the city, most likely you should be a commission agent because being an independent or reseller, it's really hard to compete with the big companies. Second thing is because the margin is so low, then people are the one which deciding to go to you if you have a very nice shop and then you have to make sure that you have everything in your shop, you're providing much more than fuel, you have a very excellent customer service and so on. So for service station, it's important uh, competition is one of the major factors. The other factor of being a successful service station and how we choose is the location. In many cases, I've seen the suburb is good, the population and competition is good, but that particular service station is located in an area which is really hard to get in or get out, right? For example, if a service station is in a 90-kilometer or 80-kilometer road, and it just after a bridge or a very sharp turn, it is really hard for drivers to catch the price, making decision, lower the speed, getting to your servo. And also when they want to get out, it's really hard to get out of that servo. So I've seen a lot of example, which is the location can make a big difference. From an actual user point of view, yeah, you're exactly right. I never even thought about that. You need to be able to see the price, make a decision, and then have time to actually turn off the road to actually get into that service station. If the service station is like too close to a major turnoff or a bridge or something, you're going to say, oh, don't worry about that one. I'll get the next one. Well, I never really thought about that like that for a service station asset. Exactly. The other very important factor after we did our all the due diligence and everything is that particular service station, how old is that, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we are dealing with a very expensive asset underground, which we call as a UPSS. This is include the underground tanks and pipes and every connection underground. And by the time if servo is like a 50 years or 20 years old, there is a most highly chance that that tanks might contaminate it or needs to be replaced and so on, right? For that purpose, there are a few ways to eliminate or mitigate the risk of getting to the wrong services station which have a cost when you want to buy a servo. But in many cases, I've seen people both decide without doing the proper due diligence. And after a year or two, they forced to close the site or they have to spend a lot of money to decommission the tank, clean the land, and then put the new tanks if they want to utilize the location for the servo again. That's one of the big reasons that a lot of commercial investors and developers they avoid these service stations that have been closed down because the cost to actually remove all the contamination and remove the tanks and stuff is so great. Would you be able to put a rough price on that to actually install that new? Like what kind of cost is that? 
if you're talking about a greenfield land, let's say we have a land which has nothing in this, what yep. we have only a DA approval from the local council, and we're going to build an average services station. We're not looking to make a massive, you know, truck stop with a lot of massive shops and restaurants. And we're not talking about the corner shop servo. We're talking about something about one to $1.5 million cost of construction of an average services station, right? But yeah. it might be interesting for you to know that building a services station often is cheaper than renovating a contaminated site. And the reason is because we don't know how much cost we might pay for decommissioning and cleaning the land, right? Yeah. And that is really important. If you're buying a services station, the owner might say, hey, I have four tanks, and one of them doesn't work. Don't worry about that. But three of them is working. That's not a good advice because you can't leave a contaminated tank underground. So you yeah. have to decommission that and you have to clean the land and you have to make sure there is no contamination left. And for an obvious reason, because if rain comes, those contaminated land and let's say fuel or diesel or whatever is there can run through the soil and goes to the rivers or the city water or else. So you have to clean it up. And that is some sort of uncertainty that it depends on when it happens. Well, if it's happened like 10 years ago, perhaps those lands is contaminated heavily and then you have to keep digging and cleaning and treating the land and coming back. Yeah, I was actually speaking to an agent who was selling, it was an asset that was actually a mechanic shop, but there used to be a service station there. So they haven't left land and the tanks were still underground. And he said to me, like, we've taken a quarter million off the price because before we actually sell it, we have to have the certificates of clearance of the land being uncontaminated now or to be rectified. That's true. Absolutely true. Yeah. And that's the other trick I've seen that there are services station with the contaminated land. And I just saw, I think, a few days ago in Queensland, and they advertise it as, I think, a mechanic shop. But I could see this was used to be a servo. So I called the agent and I said, okay, can I turn this to the servo? Just want to make sure that there is any tank in there. And he said, yes, yes, you can't use it as a servo, although there are two tanks there and one of them is contaminated. And I said, okay, I should avoid this mechanic shop because although it's labeled as a mechanic shop, technically this is a contaminated land and we have to avoid that. So mate, are there any certain brands of service stations you like more than others, like Ampol, Caltex, Shell? Like, what do you like? I personally like the one who make more money and it's mainly regardless <laughs> of brands. And I tell you why, because as I mentioned earlier, every single services station has its own criteria and risk profile, right? In the general public idea, for example, BP fuel might have a better quality than, I don't know, Caltex or independent site, right? Shell might be good for the supercars and so on, right? We all know as per ACCC, the quality between the same fuel grade are almost same. There are different between 91 and 94 and 94 with 98, but 94 in Shell are quite similar to 91 in Caltex and other brands. But what it makes difference is how they advertise and market their brands in people's mind and so on, right? As the buyer, as an investment, for me, what is important is that Am I able to define the price? If not, how is the commission? If a commission is good enough, how they sold within last three years or two years? Is there any competition? Is there any new services station would come to the game within the next one year by checking the council, uh, DA approved, and so on? So for me, it's more than what is the brand. 
it's how that particular site works. Not to mention, in many cases, you are able to rebrand the site, right? And it's quite interesting for the investor. If you buying an independent services station without any brand, but that site is in a good location and have a potential of selling more than what you think, you can go to the brands like Caltex, you can go to the Metro United and so on and discuss with them. And often they pay you money or they renovate your site with their own expenses if you're making a fuel agreement with them for like say five, 10 or 15 years. So you can use their fuel company's money in order to renovate your site. And in return, you have to buy fuel from there. So that's the other trick which you can use. Yeah, I like that. So it's really more about the value proposition of that brand and where they're seen in the market. Because obviously some brands sell petrol for higher prices and some people don't mind paying that because they believe in their mind that it's better petrol. But in reality, it might not be. That's what ACCC always said. So we know in Australia, the government role is to supervise the quality of fuel and make sure whoever advertising a certain fuel grade is set with the Australian standards, right? So putting a name next to a fuel does not make it more efficient. So we've seen that, for example, Premium 98, sometimes called as a V-Power or a Super Power or Ultra fuel or something, that doesn't make it powerful more than a normal 98, because in lab showing that pretty much it's safe. But as I said, and you highlighted that it's depends on how they market their product, right? Yeah. And as a result, they can sell it more. Big brands have a different sales channels. For example, Caltex and Shell, they're using their own card. They make contract with the companies and businesses by giving them a fuel card. As a result, they're coming and buying fuel from you and you may not getting a direct gain of selling fuel to them, but since they come into your site, you have a chance to sell your other product and cross-selling your grocery items to them. And as a result, you get a better benefit. Not to mention, in some cases, that advantage might be a disadvantage for you. I remember a few years back, there was a shell company in one of the regional area, and they used to sell a lot of fuel. And I realized like over 90% of those volume come from a shell cart, right? But then I also realized that was a mining city and mine planned to be closed within, I think, few months. And as a result, that guy would lose all of his business within a couple of months. So I avoid to buy that and so on. So there are different criteria of when you're choosing a different brand, but always, as I said, you might have a chance to rebrand your service station business. Yeah, beautiful. I really liked how you said you like the one that makes the most money. I think that was perfect. So, mate, we touched on it before, you said it before, but I didn't actually go back and talk about it. Buying in a rural area, like a regional area, you were talking about you actually make more money in that area because of less competition. And I guess it comes back to the supply and demand and competition in that area. And I'm heavily involved in trying to find a self-storage asset. And I can kind of see a very, very big similarity in investing in service stations because it's really a business that the real estate is valued off and so is self-storage and when it comes to self-storage you might be able to buy a facility for a very very low cap rate in a capital city but the amount of competition is so huge that you're actually better off sometimes looking at the supply and demand ratio in more of a regional lower population place to actually be the rates leader in that area and you'll actually when it comes down to it, you have less chance of a big vacancy because realistically, 
you're one of only maybe five or, you know, four or five people that are actually selling storage in that area. Yeah, um, supplier demand is a basic concept. In the services station is even better because as the services station freehold investor, you are dealing with a very long-term tenant, right? And that vacancy rate is often eliminated. As the business owner also, as I said, services station is one of the essential items, which we've seen in the COVID is also show that how sustainable is this business. So as a result, you are almost sure that you're not going to go out of business, even if something getting happened in the near future. The other aspect is often services station comes with a very big land and real estate, which you can utilize the other part of the land for a different purpose to sort of diversify your risk profile and increase value out of your portfolio, which in often cases, you can't do the similar thing with the other businesses. And so in terms of the future, like being a crisis-proof business, where does the electric car come into play when you're talking about like a service station? Like maybe in 30 years, are we all going to be driving electric cars so we don't need to go to a service station? Like what's your view there? Obviously, these days, talking about electric cars and Tesla and new cars and company who choosing to have more new electric car than uh, traditional fuel cars are really on the market and in the news. But if you look at the actual numbers, in particular in Australia, and if you look at the Australian government policy around this area, the numbers and facts are quite different. Okay. Yes. So you might know we have over 20 million cars in Australia, and every year that numbers will increase by 2%, right? Less than 1% of any new cars which sell in Australia are electric cars, right? So we are dealing with a huge number of diesels and petrol cars for next many years, right? What happened is that currently Australian government having a massive tax on the fuel, right? And it's actually a double tax. So there's fuel duty, similar to alcohol and tobacco. And then we have a GST on top of that, which create a massive sort of income for the Australian government. And as a result, they use that money to improve the roads and everything. Whereas the electric cars does not have that benefit. Hence, not only Australian government does not support this sort of new technology, but also most states adding a new tax for the electric car, which as today is 2.5 cents per kilometer, which they drive every year, right? We are dealing with over 6,700 services stations in Australia. But if you look at the fast charger, which takes around one hour, you can see it's like a very fancy items now. They are in the middle of between Sydney to Melbourne or Brisbane, mainly for people who want to drive between these two ways. But they are quite unpopular at the moment. And the Australian people, for whatever reason, is that it can be the high cost of the cars, the number of chargers or any other reason. They're not really welcoming this sort of technology yet. And so we can see this is not a massive game changer, at least from my point of view, within the next 10 years. But you ask about next 20 years or 30 years, we should have think about that. Okay, let's say within 30 years, we have half of the cars being electrics, right? So getting back to our initial discussion, services station properties are often located in a very prime locations, in yep. a corner block, on a main road, and so on, right? And these people still need somewhere to stop by and charge their car. 
If they want to do it at home, that might take forever, like I think eight or nine hours to get charged. Not to mention, if you are living in an apartment, you can't do that because you're using a share electricity. So the people who are living in house have a luxury of doing that if they want to do that. But if you are traveling or if you are driving a lot, you need to use these, what we call it as a service station that can be an electric charge station or whatever. And we can see now, one of the main income of the service station currently is fuel. And as a result, coming to the shop and buying grocery items, right? Now we see they adding food as well. Food is something that currently is grab and go, but we see in some service station, you have to wait and get to get your food ready. So what happened is if these things happen within next 30 years, locations are locations. But then we are dealing with people who coming to your site and let's say technology improve from one hours to become like, let's say only 15 minutes having a full charge. Okay, very aggressively improvement. So they have to stop on your side for 15 minutes. And what best you want to have a customer hang around for 15 minutes and buying items and do their shopping in your store, right? In the short term, I don't see any trade for the service station. In long term, I can see this is not only a sort of a disadvantage, but also advantage and added value for the service station to provide more goods and service to the customer. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess, obviously, I don't know if this is a thing or not, but do they pay to have their car recharged? Like, is, yes. is someone's paying for that electricity. Yes, I explain how it works. One of the other aspects that why government doesn't really supporting this electric car, and I'll tell you why, is over 80% of our electricity generated in Australia is still from fossil fuels, right? So this means it doesn't matter if these fossil fuels burning in the car or in a power plant, right? So we're thinking that within next 30 years, the solar panels and I don't know, maybe other forms of generating electricity improve and we get the actual clean energy and at least we use that there. At the current market, yes, they have to pay. There was some sort of incentives for the Tesla owners to have their cars free of charge, but that was only for the first generation. And as far as I know, it's gone. But for now, in most cases, you have to pay directly or indirectly. So you basically charge your wallets and then these companies have a network of chargers and then you get there and basically unlock the charge and then it deducts from your wallet. So that's how they pay. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely think it's something that could change many, many years, but I'm sure that you'll be able to capitalize on it enough where it still makes sense as an investment. So, mate, when you're buying a service station, and this is the real estate and the business, what kind of cap rate could you expect? I know they're reasonably low. Again, this is dependent on where you're buying that. The recent years, because less banks are happy to provide loan to the services station, which are located in the regional area, obviously you have more chance to buy services station with a high yield. And I'm talking about around 6% yep. in the regional area. Because, as I said, banks doesn't provide, in most cases, not all cases, provide loan to them. As a result, the super fund or family funds or private equity company would more interested to buy services station in the regional area. But in the city and, you know, more capital cities, you're looking for around 5 to 5.5% for the property. In terms of return of investment for the business, in the city area, I mean, in the metro city area, big city in, in Australia, we're talking about four years return of investments, which is 25%. 
if a service station has over 10 to 15 years lease left, and if we talk about two, two hours drive to the main city, we're talking about three years. And if it's like eight hours or more, we're talking about two years return of investment for buying a business if that site has over 10 or 15 years at least left. Yeah, so it's done on for a business like businesses are valued. It's done on the EBITDA. Can you just explain what EBITDA means? So basically, this means that whatever profit you make before depreciation and tax and all this deduction. So basically, how much you sell, how much is deducted from your cost of goods and cost of running businesses, including staff, rent and bills and everything. And it ends up with your pretty much gross profit per year. And then we consider this as if a service station located in the capital cities and have over 10, 15 years lease, we multiply by four. And that's going to be a rough value of the service station. If it, this is in regional area, we multiply that number with three. If it's in a very rural area, we might multiply it by two. If the same service station has less than 10 years, then we might multiply it by one year less than what I mentioned before. Yeah, that's interesting. Why is it a multiple of four? Like, how do they come to that number? Like, you know how some businesses are, yes. it's a multiple of two, it's a multiple of three, it's a multiple of five. Like, I think it's funny how some industries have different multiples and things like that. I can explain because I get this business when this was multiple by one and a half, in fact. Right. And that number has been increased every year. From what I could feel and understand is service station has a really hard barrier to entry. So you yep. can turn a normal shop to a coffee shop within a couple of months, right? You can turn a shop to a laser clinic or a house to the childcare, right? But in service station, first of all, you cannot turn every land to the service station because you need to find a vacant land in a prime location, which is in a proper zoning, and yep. then apply for DA, and then you get that and you invest as I mentioned, between 1 to 1.5 or $2 million to build a service station. So the number of services station, new services station, are not growing as much as other businesses. But we see that the number of cars and demand for a fuel keep increasing, right? As a result, the demand of services station is more than what is actually supply in terms of a new services station. This is one reason. The other reason is, People could see that during these years, service station could prove that is one of these crisis-proof businesses. So people want to put their money in a less riskier businesses. Hence, they can expect to get their return of investment in a longer period, right? And again, the other thing which I could feel and see is every five years, we can see property have a good jump. I mean, residential property in general and commercial. And whatever that happened, the next wave is people use their equity to get into the business and buying businesses. So a lot of more new capital come to the market and people competing with each other. Before I get to the server and I spoke with my a lot of friends who are in this industry, there was no goodwill, what we call as a goodwill. There was no goodwill. So you go and speak with the landlord, you get a like 10, 15 years lease and you just pay the stock value to the previous owner and you own the business, right? Then yep. it becomes six months. Then it becomes one year, one and a half year when I get that to this business. Two years, two and a half, and now it's four years. And I think based on what we're going now, that will and can increase to five or more. Because as I said, it's very low risk business. And where are you going to put your money to get 25 or 30% return? If you know what I'm saying. Yep. So 
four years or five years, it's quite makes sense for these types of business. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the banks do class service station as a specialty type asset. And I believe that the lending on those types of assets is only up to 50%. Is that correct? Yes. In the past, it was a bit more and they have a risk matrix. The risk matrix was based on who you are. Like if you are a person which you were in the industry for a number of years and had a collateral asset and have the knowledge to run the business, they could give you up to 70% loan. But now they make it much harder and it's come down to, yeah, as you mentioned, between 50 to 60 percent. Yeah, it's the same as self-storage. It's basically class exactly the same. Uh, Unfortunately, Mm. it'd be nice if self-storage was a little bit higher lending. The banks would let you on that because it'd be a lot more achievable and attainable. But anyway, so, mate, when uh, you're buying a service station business, how do you assess that it's performing well or performing poorly? Obviously, we look at the financial report as something nice to have. But we know that because we know the actual business and how it works, I normally requesting the one year or two years detail sale, like a monthly detail sale of fuel and and grocery. We also look at the business model and how they're making money. If it's a commission agent, is the daily fixed commission, if it's a cent per liter, if it's a reseller and so on. Then also I've done something for myself. I have built a sort of bot which collecting all the sales reports for all the services station and all the pricing. And I compare the figures which they provide to us with my information to make sure they providing the right numbers. And then I consider the, the cost, which we know, the hidden cost and the obvious cost like a rental and electricity and so on to figure out how much roughly they can make per year. The other factor which I consider and I mentioned before is the environmental factors. If they've done the right job by monitoring their wells and checking their dips and everything. And also I check that there is no new competitor coming to the area within next year because in most cases when they put the servo in sale is when they get to know that the new competitor comes to the market and then we can check the council or discuss with the council and make sure that there's no new close competitor to the guys which can impact the business heavily and then after that we come up with the number which we think it's the value of the business and then we start negotiation from there yeah that's really interesting that you're overlaying what the other service stations are doing in the area because that's exactly how i do it in self-storage but i didn't know that you could actually get those reports from the other service stations in the area how do you actually obtain those (laughs) <laughs> I'm collecting the information by using a bot which I've developed and collecting to the database and I have the historical data for a number of years and that gave me power to compare what they claim to have a margin and in many cases I would change the business model if it makes sense. That can be changing the working hours and I explain what does that mean and how we can make benefit or it can be basically changing the operation model from commission to reseller if the contract let us. In some cases, we have to pay a penalty to the fuel company, and that can be from twenty dollars to $100,000 to let us to change the operation models, as I said, commission to the reseller or the vice versa. But I should know that if I become commission agent or reseller, does it make benefit for me or not? And then I make decision on that. Yeah, I really think that you're doing exactly the same thing in service stations that I'm trying to do in self-storage. It's awesome. So I mean, I guess what you're actually looking for and what I'm looking for is an underperforming business 
because all then you have to do is actually improve the, the business operations to increase the value of the asset. You don't really want to have a really good performing business that you're buying into because there's no value to improve it. Is so when you're finding I'm a performing business, how do you make it perform better? Well, one of the first things which I do is to change the process. By process, I mean is how they ordering, what they ordering. And if it's a reseller, I use the game theory to define the price on the area because price is so volatile and it's defined by the market competition. So I try to understand the language of my competitors, when they increasing, how much they increasing, how long they keep it up. And then I do the reverse to tell them indirectly by changing my prices that how much we have to define our price in the area, right? Then I look at the competition and put myself as the buyers, as the fuel buyers, and see, okay, if I want to buy first cheapest fuel out of my area, how much I should drive? Is it worth it if it or not? And then I define the price. Then yeah. also I make some amendment on the shops. If needs to be done some cosmetic renovation, I do that. But one of the biggest things which I do is adding services or utilizing a space. Give you a really recent example was I bought a site, which was a servo, and it was only a servo, I would say. And then we had a massive storage area we used to keep our, we use it as an store area. But then I understand that why I should use this two-bay shop as the store area, which I could use this as a mechanic shop. I use my office area by removing some desk and use it my stock, for a stock room or a storeroom, which I did. So I hired two handyman and I just clean up all this dust and you know, broke all these shelves and everything and make it nice and clean. Then I realized that two-bay used to be a mechanic shop many years back. So I went to the council because I couldn't find the DA on the side and I could get the actual original DA from the local council. And I just put it on the market and I rent that area. Then after a few months, I realized why I'm not utilizing my yard for other reasons, because on that time, we only use it for this youth hire, basically, which is good and make money, but I could utilize it more. And I rent it to a food truck, which is a burger shop. And basically, I utilize the space for that. And I just collect a good rental out of that. Pretty much these two covering 50% of the rent, if you know what I'm saying, without pretty much spending anything rather than, I think I spent a couple of thousand dollars plus $700 for removing the dust and garbage from the old mechanic shop and turn it to the nice mechanic shop. So these sort of things can add value. And not to mention, if I want to sell the server right now, because the total net profit has been significantly increased, the value of goodwill, which I can charge for a new owner is much higher than what I could usually get. This is beside the monthly income, which has added to my portfolio. Yeah, I love that. There are so many different ways, just thinking of it now, there's so many different ways that you can add value to the service station. Shout out to the Burger Truck, World Burger. That's my brother-in-law and my sister's franchise business. So shout out to World Burger. So yes. mate, when we're talking about regional areas, what about long regional highways? Would you avoid those or do you want some population in the general vicinity? I have several in that area. Oh, you um, do? Yeah, I have. And you know what? It depends on how is your risk uh, profile, right? If you can wait a few years to get traffics and populations there, you're welcome. You go and get there. This is what I did because nowadays you can buy with the undervalued price. 
all you need to do is wait. Uh, when it times goes well, you develop the site or redevelop the site, make it big or turn it to the truck shop or adding some accommodation on top of that and many more potential and make money out of that. Because as you mentioned earlier, if a business is already making money and is all the potential already has been utilized, either you have to pay a premium price out of that or you just going and finding some area which is underdeveloped and invest and wait and basically after a few years you enjoying a good profit margin out of that. Yeah, that's interesting. So if you had to name the top things that makes up a good service station investment, what would they be? As the property investment or as the business? As both. So like if I'm looking to buy a service station and also the business as well, so the freehold going concern and the business, what would the main things I would be looking for, like just off the top of your head? For myself, business model is really important, right? Because you might buying a service station with selling 1 million liter per month, but it's one cent commission. So you have to pay a lot of cost for the employee and maintaining everything. And the main winner is the fuel company. So for myself, is very working on the business model to make sure that is suit with what I'm looking for. The other aspect is competitors. I mean, new competitors. Existing competitors already had their impact on the sites, right? But new competitors are really risky. And we've seen these problems a lot where you're buying a very high-performing servo, but after a few months, a new competitor comes and change every single thing, especially some aggressive competitors whose main job is to sell fuel and they're not really focusing on the grocery part or some other site which using fuel to attract customer to sell their grocery, which we know them. So that's the second main factor. And the third factor is the environmental impact. How clean is the site? Because you might find the best sites, very high performing and everything, but it end up by finding some problem in the underground petroleum tank and system. And then your whole business has to stop or you have to pay a lot a big penalty. Yeah, fair enough. So one of the other things that also popped into my mind is Service stations are notoriously known for getting robbed, probably more in American movies than in Australia. Mm -hmm. Is the robbery and the crime of the service station getting held up, does that ever come into play with the risk factor? Like any other businesses, you are dealing with different risks. In service station, besides shoplifting or maybe armed robbery, you are dealing with the drive-off. So drive-off as a terminology means when someone coming buying fuel without paying that. And that's divided in two different types. Sometimes people just simply forget to pay. And if they are a regular customer, they come back and pay. But if someone intentionally comes and buying and just leaving, New South Wales Police, similar to other states, define a process to reporting these criminals, right? You report, because remember, all the services station, or most services station has the CCTV camera, right? So you report the guys, the cars, the region number, and first thing the police does is to contact the person and just remind them, hey, we understand you forget to pay. Can you come back and pay? And if they say yes and pay, job done. If not, then it's up to you to go and complain and stuff. The other aspect is like a robbery as an armed robbery. I've been dealing with one robbery and the guy is behind the bar now, but just was once and it's not okay. that often. And then we have shoplifting, which normally happen during the younger generation or teenage people. So it's not a big issue for the business, but 
particularly the drive off normally from my experience is really dependent on the locations. Unfortunately, some location has much more drive off than others. Like I won't name it suburbs, but once a year or a couple of times a year, there was a site which we plan to buy and I'm glad that we haven't. And it was in an area with a very high drive off and we could see on the report and we could see how people behaving and so on. But in general, unless you have a lot of drive off, this is not a game changing factor. So it's not really bothering me. As you said, this is more in a Hollywood movies than in reality. Yeah. So is the drive off a metric that is actually tracked and what when you're actually buying a service station, you would ask for those metrics? So we have a reconciliation in the system for the fuel. And this is mainly for making sure that there is no contamination, there is no leakage and there is no theft or robbery. So the amount of fuel which we're buying and putting in the underground has to be offset with how much we're selling, right? And if this is something wrong, there might be evaporation, it might be a leak, it might be a robbery. So in the system itself, the post system, point of sale system, that has been defined. And when operator wants to close the shift, he has to put this, let's say 30 liter or 50 liter as the drive off, right? However, because we are not there all the time, they may a scaring of doing that and they might just don't do that, to be honest with you. But in some degree, you can see. If you are lucky, as I said, once or twice a year, there's no regret that they don't put this there because that might happen. That's fine. But if it's happened like every month, like five times a month, six times a month, then you have to think about it, how you do that. There are ways to eliminate that. I had a service station in a regional area with a very high crime rate. And at night we had drive off. Then what we did was we turn off the pump. We asked at night, we asked the customer to come pay in advance. And then we release that amount for the person and he could just buy, for example, $20 or $30, whatever they paid for before they actually can fill up the tank. So there are ways to eliminate or mitigate these risks. But as I said, again, it's not a very major risk in general. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, man, I'm sure there are uh, some kind of rules and regulations and licenses that you need to have to be able to operate a service station. What are they and and how do you uh, learn about them? That's one of the tricky parts. So at the moment, in order to basically running a service station, there are multiple authorities which has their own rules and regulation. You are dealing with the safe fork. You are dealing with the EPA, you are dealing with the local council, you are dealing with ACCC, and so on. And that was one of the gaps in the market, which I could feel that how an ordinary person who running a site has to know all about this regulation. And every single authority has its own forms and process and task and everything. So what happened was, let me understand what we're doing. Then I partner with an, an environmentalist who've been in the industry for many years. Then I designed my SaaS product and SaaS system, which let service station operator as well as the brand owner or people with multiple sites to oversee and manage all these requirements, regulatory process and forms and everything in one single platform. The, in terms of licensing, the person who operate the site needs to have a first aid license like any other businesses or most businesses. But if you are in New Solways, you have to get a license for selling tobacco. And if you are in Queensland and Victoria, you have to train your staff that how they're selling, but there's no license for that. 
And then there are normal insurance, which you have to have. And basically that's, that's about it. But there are certain tasks and requirement and process for every single authority that you have to follow. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of regulations and rules. And I, I do suggest if anyone is thinking about purchasing a service station or they just want to get more information about it, then you definitely need to get experts like Hamad in your corner. So well, where can listeners go to find out more about you, man, and your SaaS business? So my SaaS business works under uh, my servo brand. So basically, myservo.info is the website which we have, and email is info at myservo.info, simple. Then they can contact me or call me. And then from there, if an individual services station owner, we have a different access for that, which they can add their staff and they get in a very simple form, they can have all these forms and requirements. And this is a part of our service, which is on the SaaS platform. We have our own inspector and auditors coming to the sites, monitoring underground wells and teaching you how to make sure that you are comply with all these compliance and regulatory requirements. And if you are a brand owner or person with multiple sites, we give you an access and power to manage all your site under one banner and one system. Perfect, mate. Well, thanks for the interview. My guest today has been Hamad Tavoy. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Data don't lie. That's right. In this segment, I'm going to share the information and data from CP Data, the newest commercial property platform on the market. So I'm going to share one location, good or bad, and give you a true reflection of what the numbers are saying about that market. All right, so the first location that we're going to cover this year in 2022, we'll go for a hot location, and that is Tweed Heads. Yes, Tweed Heads was one of the best performing locations in Australia in 2021, and I have no doubt that it will be performing very, very well in 2022 as well. When you bring up the sales data in CP data, you can see that it's very, very low stock on hand. So for retail properties, there's a 3.1% on hand on for office, 4.4% on hand to be sold, and industrial, a 1.6% of the stock is on hand. Now in CP data, we do have a detailed cap rate guide. So you'll have to check it out to get the cap rates for this location but they're pretty decent right now. So going on to the leasing data, once again, very, very tight listed vacancy rates here. For retail, 7.7% vacancy, which is extremely low for retail. Now this is last month's data from December 2021. So last month there was one new lease written in Tweed Heads for retail property and for lease there was only 20 properties available for lease. And now for office, which is also, this is probably one of the best performing markets for office space in Australia. So once again, the listed vacancy rate is a measly 7.4%. That's really low for office. 
considering what's happening in that sector right now. And moving on to industrial, there was only six industrial properties for lease in December 2021. So the listed vacancy rate is ridiculously low at 2.4%. Now, once again, we do have a detailed rate per square meter guide in CP data. So if you want to check it out, that basically will tell you the high and low for each individual sector. If you want to check that out, jump on the CP data and get a subscription. So moving on to the employment data. Now, Tweetheads actually has a reasonably small population of just over 8,000. I'm sure that's changed now because it's quite a desirable location for the working from home movement. And we all know the working from home movement has changed the way that we look at getting a job now and it's definitely here to stay. So if you're looking at the jobs that are available in Tweed Heads at the moment, in December there were 135 jobs available, so it's not too bad for a population of just over 8,000, and there was 22 high-income jobs there. So that equates to 16.3% of the total available jobs were high-income jobs, which is very, very good. And so that brings us to the end of our first location for data don't lie and that is tweed heads very very tightly held location no stock available and if you would like to check out the data for the location that you're looking at investing in go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au there's over 80 plus locations tracked with plenty of data for you to make informed decisions and stop investing in the dark. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. Check out our free memberships today. All right, all right. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you to my guest, Hamad Tagvoy and Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, Success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Develop a Life production.